Good afternoon. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School. I'd like to welcome all of you to the first of our Monday evening lectures. Um, it's good to see you all here. If Anne Blair were a guitarist, a rock guitarist, she would be Eric Clapton. <laughs> She's that good and she's that scary. Um, she went to a small university founded in the 1630s in Cambridge, Massachusetts and was graduated summa cum laude. She then went to a university in a different Cambridge relegated to Fens and um, got an MPhil in the history of philosophy and science. She then went to Princeton University, studied with a man known to some of us here named Tony Grafton, and got her PhD. Um, she's won a MacArthur Fellowship, a Mellon Foundation, uh, New Directions Fellowship, uh, among the last of the Bunting Institute Fellowships at Radcliffe College. Um, but among all her honors, the concatenation that I like the best is that she won the very coveted and prestigious Hoops Prize for her senior thesis at Harvard, and then on the faculty won it again for the best direction of a senior thesis. <laughs> That's really quite lovely. That must be a fairly rare double. Uh, Anne Blair is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of History at Harvard University, but you have to read carefully also to know that she holds a Harvard College professorship concomitantly for distinction in teaching. This is a great book, too much to know on the information revolution and how to handle it in the Renaissance. If you Google the term information overload, as I did this afternoon, you get, quote unquote, approximately 3.75 million hits. <laughs> the term information overload was popularized in English in uh, Alan Toffler's Future Shock, a book published in 1970. Little did he know. If, if you want to know about the Clapton-esque scholarship in this book, you know those Jesuits who brought the 7,000 books over to China in 1623 that I was talking about? Well, I always thought, gosh, there ought to be a bibliography of those books. Somebody should go to China and, and find out if those books survive at all. And sure enough, in the last chapter, when Anne Blair is talking about the dissemination of important Renaissance uh, reference books, she cites a bibliography <laughs> published in French in Beijing in 1949 of that library. That's very, very cool. I'd, I'd like to just read to you one, one paragraph from her book. This is from the epilogue of Too Much to Know. Technology 
still has its limits. In my line of work, no tools exist to stand in for personal mastery of one's subject matter and careful judgment informed by contextual understanding. Human attention is one of our most precious commodities, and many forces compete for it with an ingenious range of software and hardware devices. Even while information storage has been delegated to other media, human memory still plays a crucial role in recalling what to attend to and when and how. Similarly, judgment is as central as ever in selecting, assessing, and synthesizing information to create knowledge responsibly. I can think of no better paragraph written by any scholar about the information age and the duties incumbent upon responsible scholarship. Today she'll speak to us on managing information in manuscript and print in early modern Europe. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Anne Blair. Thanks so much for that very gracious introduction and to all of you for being here. It's really a pleasure to branch out and meet uh, new people operating in the history of the book. And to add a footnote to that story, the way I got that great reference was actually by talking to a colleague at the University of Wisconsin, Florence Shaw, who wrote a book on the Jesuits in China. And so I would say that we're all engaged in a collective undertaking and we can share resources and uh, it's a constant process of learning from each other. And Professor Blair acknowledges that she got the reference <laughs> from okay. Anne Shaw in the footnote. <laughs> I'd forgotten that, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> yes, it's the key to remembering all those things. Well, that, that's where note-taking comes in. Well, so I'm a historian of early modern Europe, and one of the things that uh, the first kind, I think, of book history that early modern European historians did was a social history of books, in particular looking at cheap print and trying to assess uh, widely shared views through the distribution of chapbooks, almanacs, uh, and the like. And I just um, want to show you an example of cheap print uh, and the hazards of cheap print for historians is that they, it doesn't survive well. So here is an example of an indulgence which is printed, but you see that it's to be filled in by hand, as this one has been. Um, let's see if I got it, wrong direction. There we go. You fill it in by hand, your date, and who it is who's buying this indulgence and is going to get preferential treatment uh, when the time comes, and the ecclesiastical imprimatur and signature of all this. So indulgences were printed in millions, probably, uh, even before 1500. Probably, maybe Gutenberg's first imprint was actually an indulgence, and we have only a few hundred that survive. I'm going to be talking today about the opposite phenomenon, which is the big book. Uh, so these are giant uh, folio volumes. Uh, the largest one is in eight folio volumes, a total of 10 million words. 
And here's an example of um, you know where we can find uh, the. This is sort of the standard reference book I'm going to be talking about, which caps at 2.5 million words. So it's not humongous, but nonetheless, it's very large when you consider how these were made. And you can see here, just to get a sense, each of these dots then is uh, more than one copy uh, of how very widely distributed these large books were. I think this, these works pose an opposite problem to the historian. These works were clearly worth a lot of money. They're hard to destroy, actually. Um, and they're the kind of thing you tend to pass on. Here the problem is uh, a nice line from Hugh Amory that most printed books have never been read. The way you print something, if you're going to make money from it, is to print as many copies as might possibly sell so that you would make a profit. Once you've printed your run, run off your whatever it is, 1,250, say, copies of a page, it's a huge labor to undo that page and make it again later if you want. So you might as well print off as many copies as you can possibly hope to sell. In many cases, this will be an overestimate, of course. That's, of course, the copies that will be sold. Most copies sold perhaps are not read, as we all know from all those books on our shelves waiting to be read. Um, nonetheless, I'm going to argue that reference books suffer from this phenomenon, for sure, and yet uh, they were re-edited, reprinted by the same printer, and that is the clearest indication we have that the first print run sold out. Otherwise, why would the guy do it again? A new printer, of course, can be taken in by uh, a hope that's not borne out. But so big books survive very well, and uh, they were used, although, of course, they weren't read through in the same way that smaller books were. So my book is, and I'm, I'm looking at big books in the early modern period, but I just want to start by saying that there were big books without print, uh, big books without the codex. So here uh, is a visualization from a bas-relief that's been destroyed of how you store papyrus rolls. And the big book in the papyrus world uh, that has come down to us entire, it's the largest one to come down to us entire to my knowledge, is Pliny, uh, Pliny the Elder's Natural History in 38 books. So in the papyrus world, a book is a volumen, it's a scroll. And you have 38 books because you need 38 scrolls to pack all the stuff in that constitute this work. So you can imagine this is 27 um, rolls depicted in this. So if you're going to carry around or store the natural history of Pliny, you're going to need some space. And buckets were one of the ways that you carried around uh, lots of things. Hence the attraction of the Codex in the early Christian period for these uh, apostles who are traveling a lot and you can actually pack a fair amount more into a codex form than your bucket loads of scrolls. So, but we don't need printing or even the codex to have big books. An alternate view of a big book is in the Chinese world with xylography or woodblock printing, which has a tremendous advantage of your being able to save the woodblock from which you printed the book. You don't actually need to print all that many copies at first because you'll always have the woodblock until they wear out, which can take hundreds of years or thousands of impressions. And um, until then, then all you have to do is have the space to save your woodblocks, and you can basically do a print-on-demand with relatively little hassle. So it's a very different economy of book production than movable type. But you can see the problems of storing these woodblocks can be considerable as well. So nonetheless, though, we're going to talk about uh, big books in the transition from medieval to uh, printing. And one of the 
uh, one of the purposes of these big books, the ones I'm studying at least, is as a means of response to the perception of overload, of too many books. And I love the opening lines of one of the biggest books, certainly the biggest book of the Middle Ages, which wasn't surpassed until 1600 in size, so a very big book, Vincent of Beauvais' Speculum Maius, The Large Mirror, and he opens his prologue. Since the multitude of books, the shortness of time, and the slipperiness of memory do not allow all things which are written to be equally retained in the mind, it occurred to me, the least of all the brothers, as I studied assiduously the books of most authors and read studiously for a long time, finally, and on the advice of my superiors, to reduce in one volume, in a kind of compendium and in summary orders, order, some flowers chosen according to my talent from almost all those authors which I was able to read, whether our own, that is Catholic doctors, or Gentiles, that is philosophers and poets, and from historians of both kinds. And this is how he opens. So those are the variables, right? The multitude of books, the shortness of time, and the slipperiness of memory. So I am bringing you flowers, the best bits from everything I have been able to read, stored in one place, in summary order, and sorted. That, those are the key uh, moves of information management, I would argue, even in the world of Pliny, um, and certainly at work uh, for Vincent de Beauvais here quite explicitly. So at 4.5 million words, uh, this work wasn't surpassed in size until 1600. However, a medieval manuscript doesn't circulate in quite the same way as a large printed book. You don't actually need to put it all together to sell it. So manuscripts are produced largely on commission, and there are, out of the 300-plus surviving manuscripts of Vincent de Beauvais' Speculamaius, how many are entire? Two. Vincent's own and one other. Then, within the four-part work, there was one part that was especially popular, the Speculum Historiale, and we have something like 180 copies of that alone, but not all of those are entire. So you can see that when you're operating in the manuscript world, a big book is actually something you copy from the parts you're interested in. Uh, unless you really want the whole thing, which is going to be very costly and take a lot of time to wait for. Uh, so, so printing is going to change the big book and how it operates because print, uh, in, in printing you're trying to appeal through one work to as many people as possible and stuff as much into that single um, work. I just want to talk a bit about how basically consul consultation reading exists in the Middle Ages thanks to developments of the 13th century scholastics in particular. And these are developments that we're very familiar with. Um, you know, the two-column format, say, of the Encyclopedia Britannica down to 1985. Uh, the um, double spacing of the most important text here. This is uh, Aristotle's Metaphysics. And then single spacing of a gloss on that, which is the commentary by Averroes. Then we have columns, two registers for marginal annotations. You could have, in the Middle Ages, a professional reader who might be hired to prepare a manuscript for reading by you as the client. That would mean, for example, making corrections, glossing difficult words, uh, clarifying things, if, depending on your level of expertise. And then the second layer might be your own annotations as a reader. What else do we see? We see numbering. Of course, this is added later on. We see headings within a manuscript. The, the, uh, a heading might indicate what section of a book you were in. Uh, but scholastic manuscripts did number things. For example, Thomas's Summa Theologica is numbered by quaestio, objection, response, and so forth. The pages themselves weren't numbered, 
they weren't very relevant in an environment where every time you copy something, something will end up on a different page from an, uh, another manuscript. What you really care about is the layout independent numbering, the breakdown, the logical breakdown of the text into chapters, questions, responses, objections, and so on. With this very carefully ordinated layout is also born the opposite, which is the private manuscript. And here's an example of Thomas Aquinas' Scriptura in Intelligibilis, uh, which deserves its name, as you can see. I certainly can't read that. Uh, and neither could his uh, scribes, who uh, basically, once he was a big enough uh, person, he no longer wrote down his own works, but composed by dictation. Um, the scribes presumably preferred that than dealing with uh, the results of his own composition. <laughs> Here's an example of what color does in a medieval manuscript. It's, it would seem to us to be purely ornamental, but it's actually very important as a finding device. As someone like Mary Carruthers has shown, uh, even in the case of monastic manuscripts, this is, the, this is two different manuscripts of the same alphabetical index to the most important, most widely copied part of Vincent of Beauvais' Speculum Maius, which is the Historiale. And you can see this one uh, doesn't use uh, going, to, you know, doesn't use blank space and doesn't use the red and blue alternation of new entries in the index. They are actually the same content, but here it's much easier to gravitate toward a specific entry because you see the alternation of color and the waste of space by uh, not, you know, immediately moving into the next entry when you finished one. So that's the kind of thing you pay for. Um, so I'm going to be talking about printed reference works, and I just want to point out that most of these reference works have medieval models and sources. The dictionary, the florilegia, what I call the um, encyclopedia, are all have very direct medieval sources and models, basically from the 13th century. Balbid Catholicon, which was strictly alphabetized exceptionally. The florilegium in general is the collection of sentenciae, authoritative sayings by Bible or church fathers, plus church fathers. Sometimes in a separate one, you might have Aristotle. And then by the time we get to the Renaissance, we have Florilegia that mix all of the above and add orders and poets, Cicero, Horace, Virgil, and so forth. Um, these are sorted by topical headings, subject headings, that are typically arranged alphabetically. Then what I call encyclopedia, which of course is a highly anachronistic term, which is basically applied from the 19th century on to a canon of medieval encyclopedias, was not a term used in the Middle Ages. It was a term coined in the 16th century. Um, but these are large books that are trying to cover all disciplines and that are sorted systematically um, according to some arrangement that mimics nature is the idea behind it. Although, as we saw already in the 14th century, we've got one alphabetical index to a part of, of, of Vincent of Beauvais. And the work I'll be talking about in the print world, which is sort of the equivalent of Vincent of Beauvais because it is the blockbuster, bigger than which there is no book. Um, Theodore Zwinger's Theater of Human Life, which then grows and then is followed by the sequel, the Magnum Theatrum, at ten, 10 million words, the eight folio volumes. The one genre that I actually won't talk about much today that is really new in the Renaissance and by looking back to ancient models is the miscellany. So the historiography on encyclopedism in general or reference books has tended to emphasize the contrast, the push and pull between alphabetical order on the one hand and systematic order on the other. But in fact, there's another order, which is the miscellaneous order, the self-consciously miscellaneous order, 
which Erasmus engages in, Callius Vodiginus and others. They talk about the variety, the pleasure of not knowing what you're going to find next in this great book. The fun of moving from one thing to another, sort of by stream of consciousness. Um, and yet, these are also reference books. They are useful. They are accessible to you through the alphabetical index, which with, the, which, with which they are invariably printed um, from the first edition on, unlike their ancient antecedents, which, like uh, um, Gellius's Noctis Attique, is a self-conscious miscellany, but has no index to it. So these are the main players of um, my world of printed reference books. So what does printing do to a reference work? Uh, here is Domenico Nani Mirabelli's Polyantea, the one that was peppered all over Europe, the most often reprinted of the ones I studied and um, very widely distributed. So here's uh, an early edition, 1507, exceptionally the, just about the only one that has an illustration, and this is the only copy I've ever seen which was uh, hand-colored in. Uh, obviously a beautiful copy, emphasizing the piety of this florilegium, which promises to give you the best stuff, saving you the bad parts, the dangerous parts of um, ancient pagan literature, for example. That's sort of what this elegy is about. Uh, you can see inside this list of authorities, of authors, which of course is, is a sign um, of indebtedness to sources without specifying where specific parts come from at this point. And this is too a genre that exists in antiquity. So Pliny will list his sources. One thing that printing does is to get rid of color. Um, and so that's the blackening of the page. The, the, that color was added in by hand. And as I uh, indicated, I really haven't found many beyond that one copy that have been colored in by hand. Printing reproduces um, these squiggly brackets, for example, that exist in medieval manuscripts. And you can see over time, this is the same. So here is an early edition, and here is a late edition of the same text. Everything gets scrunched. They're packing a whole lot more text in. They don't get rid of anything in each successive edition, but they add and add, and therefore write in smaller type and use the page more effectively, more efficiently. So printing makes possible bigger and bigger books, and it encourages the growth in size. Each new edition wants to boast that it's offering something that wasn't there before. In case you already have an edition, you might want to buy the updated latest one. Um, but also, I think the constant search for new readership uh, is based on the notion that there will be something here for everyone, from every walk of life, even women, the young, the old, um, the lazy, the, the slothful, and the learned should all be able to find something in these books. That's the, the main refrain of the prefatory material. Here's an example of how the arrangement of a printed uh, reference book can have an impact on how individuals kept their own notes. So this is an anonymous manuscript from Cambridge University Library, and you can see that it's got headings with little paragraph markers, admonitio, adolescentia, adversitas, acedia, acephali, people with no heads, no entry there, adversarii, <laughs> adulatio, but interestingly, these are exactly the headings that you find in the Polyantea of Mirabelli. And he's copied them out, even if he doesn't really have anything to enter under certain of these headings. He may come across some sometime. He hasn't really, of course, left, him, left himself much space for the people without heads. Um, <laughs> and what he has when he does have entries is references to books in his collection, which are quick things. You can see here, chapter, so Expositio, 
etc. In the, in the Bibli- Library of the Fathers, Tome 2, page 795. So he's obviously referring to a book he knows where he can find, that he can find. But he's used the, the sorting mechanism of a printed book to guide him in how he's going to want to sort his own notes. What you do if you have to get rid of color and you don't have those nice blue and red paragraph markers? Well, dingbats, with which we are all familiar, thanks to the word offerings, uh, are one of the tools that uh, these most sort of advanced reference books use. So I call this, this is the clover and the right-facing pepper and the left-racing pepper and the, the uh, this is the manacle. William Sherman has, has baptized this pointing finger uh, as sort of a, a term for cross-referencing or calling attention to something in the margin as the manacle. Uh, I like the term. Uh, so you can see that, that there's experimenting going on with uh, replacing some of the features, finding new uh, print-based black and white features. And of course, white space is the other big thing you have in lines. So here, this was Zwinger uh, 1586, and this is Zwinger's sequel. So Zwinger already was quite packed in compared to the early uh, Polyanthea, and now we're getting the most uh, packed in version with very few dingbats, actually. We're just down to asterisks, and tons and tons of lines and the use of different fonts, obviously small caps, uh, in addition to italics and lowercase, and um, obviously less visually interesting uh, as you go along. The finding devices are also going to become more sophisticated. So, so far we've seen the first finding device in the Polyantea was just a list of authorities. It really isn't a finding device at all, but they do call it an index often. Here we have the index titulorum, which is the alphabetical list of the headings in Sphinger's systematically arranged theatrum. And you can see someone has added some headings, right, a, a reader, feeling that uh, there's stuff missing. This kind of list will become much more sophisticated. So here we see the headings in order of appearance, right? You can see it's not alphabetically arranged, but systematically arranged. And, but this is just a simple list. And here you see one layer of indentation where amor is broken down into love of what? Love of neighbors, love of your hosts, love of your fellow pupils, love of disciplines, love of your teachers, right? And here we get the most advanced kind of um, list of items in order of appearance. By this time, Swinger's Magnum Theatrum has become alphabetized. So the order of appearance is alphabetical order, but within an entry like Oblivio, forgetfulness, you have lots of different things than which are spelled out at five layers deep of indentation. So I like to think of these as PowerPoint outlines. This is the 1631. So you can really find your way around this quite nicely. It gives you page numbers as well. And you can understand the logical structure of the article. Another kind of index um, which Zwinger introduces uh, is the index of proper names. So you can see here also an index which will not just index each item separately, but lump together all the Conrads of the same kind, right? Here we're in the Conrads, and I like this because we can see Conrad Gessner has gotten, is that him? There's another Conrad. Well, he's get, this has been expurgated. Uh, in other words, every time a Protestant is praised, scratch, 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 um, often the entry will remain, but the praise will go. Uh, and interestingly, sometimes the innards of the book aren't expurgated. So if you expurgate the index, you actually can't find the stuff inside it, so you don't need to. Uh, there's all kinds of expurgation. There's also expurgation which is designed to be read past, you know, which is sort of signaling lightly that you shouldn't be reading this, but in fact you really can. 
I find the index exemplorum, as Swinger calls it, particularly useful because the headings and the other index is an index of memorable words and things. And the kinds of headings that come up in that index are really much less predictable and have traveled time through time less well than the proper names, which we can all agree on. And so this is actually what I've used as my main navigational tool given the intervening change, mentality changes. Uh, but of course, that's what makes an index of uh, memorable words and things or of headings particularly rich for study uh, to try and understand the, the terms in which they conceived of finding things in their book. Yeah. Swinger, by the way, is, uh, makes no bones about having multiple indexes and offering no cross-references. And he explains that if you want to find something, you need to think about the synonyms you might look under and look in multiple places. It's your responsibility as a reader. <laughs> and, you know, don't expect me. Of course, it's making a virtue of necessity on the one hand, but it's also uh, articulating the notion that the, the sort of, the reader can't expect to be given everything on a platter. The reader will be hunting. And other um, contemporaries talk about the tiresomeness of consulting indexes, how much work is involved because there are multiple indexes and because you don't, there are multiple possible approaches to a topic. Still good advice today, I would say. So how does a big book get made in the world of print? Printing certainly makes it cheaper to produce these things. These are on a scale that's even greater than Vincent of Beauvais and as I said, no one even owned all of Vincent of Beauvais in the Middle Ages. You make a big book because you have a collection of notes from which you can make the big book. That's from the compiler's perspective. And these big books are made bigger through the additions of later compilers' notes that get added in and filed into it. So my argument, this also talk, is about an argument about overload, the sources of overload in general. That overload in the Renaissance, which is of course a, a refrain that grows in amplitude in the 16th century. Many more people complain about overload in terms very similar to what Vincent de Beauvais said. But Vincent de Beauvais was one guy who was actually writing for a lot of people who probably didn't suffer from overload, who had severe underload, and who were grateful to have his book to give them a glimpse of all those books they didn't have access to. But overload becomes much more of an, of, of an experienced reality for more people, of course still only an educated elite, through printing, when personal libraries grew tremendously, maybe tenfold, say, over the first hundred years of printing. So in that environment, uh, we talk about overload as something that it seems to be something that is suffered by the Europeans in addition to the New World discoveries, the ancient texts, all this stuff, you know, and they're suffering from it. But I'd like to emphasize that really they brought this on themselves. You know, the Chinese had printing and they didn't just start printing everything uh, uh, from their classical heritage and reports of the New World and all kinds of new things. There's a mentality shift that I would locate in the Renaissance or even before printing with the 14th and 15th century Italian humanists who start stockpiling note-taking. And this has to do with humanist pedagogy, which tells you that in order to practice being a good Latinist, you should read all the ancient sources and you should take notes of the best bits to train yourself rhetorically, to imitate, to be able to learn these things by heart and drop them into your own compositions. But you should also, you can also compile knowledge, information, stuff, and you, so you'll have multiple notebooks where you'll be saving up, stockpiling all this material, and then you'll never have be at a loss for words and conversation 
or in writing home to your parents to ask for money, or in writing orations or sermons, right? You can compose readily from your stock, your thesaurus. So this, I think, is a sea change. The idea that the note is not something you just take for a particular purpose on a temporary writing surface, like the wax tablet, or a scrap of parchment, which then gets, can be get reused for other purposes than writing. But rather, the note is something that you save and you return to, and you may even try to bequeath to your heirs. Uh, a few reported cases of people trying to buy someone else's notes. Uh, I've never found one really successful, but there's this fantasy that if you just had the notes of a great scholar, you could be great too. And so the printed reference book is offering you who want to have a great collection of notes, but maybe didn't quite pull it off, ready-made a collection of notes, the equivalent of those notes you wish you'd taken yourself. So I'd say this culture of note-taking and of accumulating and stockpiling and saving your notes is what's driving, making possible on the one hand, writing such big books, and secondly, driving the popularity of these big books, even if maybe they're not that used. <laughs> right? As your own note collection, maybe you don't look at it that often. So, I, so actually one of the most fun parts of the project for me was, was looking into how people took notes in, in this period, how they were taught to take notes and how they actually took notes, uh, and, and reflecting on you know, what that says about how we operate too. I'm, a, I'm conscious of being what I would call an abundant note taker. Uh, so I just want to outline the two main ways of, that note taking pedagogues uh, outlined for taking notes. And they are both by Jesuits both from the early 17th century, and both of these works remain in print into, through the late 18th century and into the early 19th century. So it's very hard to say that one of these methods is more modern than the other. Chronologically, that's just not the case. It is true that there are more editions of the Drexel overall than of the Sakini. Nonetheless, they are still with us today as models of how to interact with your reading and your sources. So the first point is, why take notes at all when you could, of course, just refer to a printed collection of notes like a reference book? Um, why handwrite when you can print? You handwrite when it's just your own personal notes? Or because you think that writing itself, the motion of the hand, is an important discipline that will help you master the material? And both Sakini and Drexel talk about that aspect. Writing slows down your racing eyes that will run through the reading way too fast and won't actually retain anything. So by forcing yourself to write it down, you'll retain better. This is advice you find that Cotton Mather's busy giving it to uh, Harvard students in the early 18th century. And so here are uh, here's an example of Sakini. This is the intensive note-taking method. And these uh, materials survive thanks to an unusual circumstance, the note-taker became the founder of the Herzog August Bibliothek in Braunschweig, Duke of Braunschweig, and actually Wolfenbüttel, sorry, uh, is now where the library is, and he saved his own schoolboy notes. Usually these kinds of notes don't survive, they get trashed somewhere along the way, but since he made his own library, he did have his own stuff in it. So here we see Augustus of Braunschweig as an adolescent with a private tutor, he's a nobleman, um, and we can see him starting off by reading Cicero, underlining the best bits. Then you copy out the underlinings in the Sentenzensammlung, 
which is, as you can see, is very neat. It's Cicero. One, two, three, right? It's by order of reading. By order of appearance in the text, you copy out the best bits, the stuff you underlined. But of course, it's not organized in a way to be able to find anything again very readily, unless you're remembering when exactly you um, read something. So the next is next notebook is a recopying of the same best bits in a notebook that's sorted by commonplace headings. So we have sapientia siwe intelligentia here, wisdom or intelligence. And of course, we have some neat orderly ones, and then we have more uh, frantically squished additions to this classic commonplace book. Right? You don't know how much white space to leave. You copy over neatly as you're doing it, the Cicero, and then you find more stuff that you want to put in here. And you run out of space, and um, you might be writing in haste, or I don't know what, you sort of in party mode there, I don't know. Uh, anyways, you get a much messier notebook here. But notice that this is the second time you've copied over this stuff. So Sakini is telling you, you should copy over everything twice. And basically, he feels that you should always have this second notebook on you at all times, and during your idle moments, you will read over your notes and basically memorize them. So for him, the note is an aid to memory in that sense that it will help you distill what you need to know so that you can actually almost know it by heart. So that's one vision, the intensive note-taking. Multiple copying and then rereading, rereading. Uh, here's another one, where Eruditio, where you can see he actually left um, more space than he, he used. At the opposite end, we have the bulk note takers, who are, of course, the people who compile large reference books. Um, so why do you save and keep your notes? And I love this um, comment made of an abundant note taker, Nicolas Fabry de Peresque, by his biographer of uh, a near contemporary, Pierre Gassendi, uh, who described, so Peresque published nothing. He wrote letters, he corresponded with people, but he published nothing. So you can see that note-taking does not necessarily correlate with being an author. And conversely, of course, there are authors in this period who don't take notes, but are nonetheless abundant authors. But Gassendi writes, and why did Peresque compile all these notes? He was diligent in writing down any notable thing that came into his mind or was suggested by some other or observed in reading because he could never endure that the least invention or observation of any man should be lost, being always in hopes that either himself or some other would be advantaged thereby. Therefore, he wrote things down in his memorials because he then judged they were out of danger of being forgotten. So there's this sense here of participating in a republic of letters, a collective undertaking of saving every thought, every pearl of wisdom. It might someday be useful to someone. Don't let it be lost put it in a notebook, and then, of course, you hope you remember where to find it again. That's the trick. Piresque was no, no, notorious, Gassendi describes, a very messy working environment where, nonetheless, he could find his way around everything as long as no one had disturbed his papers. <laughs> of course, one can surmise that sometimes the papers did get disturbed, and Piresque did have difficulty, um, but he always blamed it on someone else. So this is bulk note-taking. Piresque has left dozens of volumes of notes, um, as have a number of other scholars. And this is the kind of note-taking that Jeremiah Drexel, that other Jesuit, recommended. So he said, you should take notes. Um, and he says also, you should take notes in any way that suits you. There are multiple methods. 
But what you should do, because you're not going to remember, you need to index your notes. Right? So here's an example of uh, the notebooks of a Protestant uh, refugee in Geneva. I happened to be working at the University of Geneva. And uh, these are three folio volumes. You can see he's mimicked print in his notebook. He's got column numbers. He's got these A, B, C numbers, which are finding devices on a large page, which occur in all large books. I think uh, the, I should have pointed that out in the uh, Magnum Theatrum we had earlier. You can see here he's excerpting from an account of the relate, Jesuit relations to the Indies. So it goes on for pages and pages, but at the end, he has an index. It's an alphabetically arranged index, which he keeps in one column, and then he has a next column is for additions to the index, because of course, as he uh, makes new entries, he may find terms that he didn't have in his index before. And you can see that his points of reference are a page number followed by a letter. So it's a very specific form of reference that will let you get back to the paragraph um, that might be of interest to you. So this is the bulk note-taking method. Of, index, of, of indexing your own notes, lest you forget them. So there, the note is again an aid to memory, but much of a kind that's more familiar to us, where we kind of feel we're offloading onto paper so that we don't actually have to remember it. But we have a finding device, which is the index. Here is a, a glimpse, a rare glimpse, uh, in a book that's celebrating the, uh, the Emanuensis here, Nicholas Canius, oh, Gilbert Conactus, sorry, who actually went on to become an author in his own right. Uh, so Erasmus isn't the one who's publishing this, uh, but his, his uh, Emanuensis, or secretary, it's a depiction of Erasmus working with Cognatus together. Uh, and we do have a few manuscripts with multiple hands where Erasmus and an Emanuensis have, for example, worked on the index to one of Erasmus's large books, like the Adages, miscellaneously arranged, so the index is super important, and Erasmus and his uh, secretary of the day worked on that together. So that note-taking is often something you do with other people. Uh, people also talk about hiring note-takers and just uh, explaining to them the kinds of notes you wish to have taken for you. Of course, this is marring the uh, impact of the note-taking act as slowing down the reading and aiding in the retention. It's not clear there's any better than buying a reference book. Uh, but as you can imagine, with such a time-consuming activity, uh, shortcuts are, were often sought after. So we have note-taking, and I now want to make the link between note-taking and the making of the big printed book. So here uh, I have two case studies, uh, both from Swiss um, collections of manuscripts. And this is our man, Theodor Zwinger, the author of The Theater of Human Life, 1565, 1.5 million words. It triples in his lifetime. And then it's the object of the Magnum Theatrum, which doubles yet again. You can see here that the classic <coughs> Memento Mori, the hourglass, but also in the skull, but then a laurel wreath on the skull. You know, he touched glory. Here is Bellerophon in the background, the, the fall, the hubristic fall of someone who tried to rival the gods. And uh, art historians assure me that it's fair to read this as sort of, sort of, see my ambition, how hard I, how, how close I came. So on the one hand, he's sort of being humble, but on the other hand, he's also saying, I gathered, as he says in his preface, I gathered in one work all, the, all of human behavior just as God will see it at the last judgment. <laughs> this is not a modest man, uh, no small ambition. And he also dedicates his work to the one and triune Lord. 
So he's not settling for any, any local magnate here. He's, he wants the big time. So what do we have in his manuscripts? We have some of these slips of paper. I'll show you a few of them, one, two, and then this is how they have been tipped into the back of a volume that's mainly comprised of letters. Singer is known for his large correspondence network. So you can see here there's basically a few thicknesses worth of, um, of these slips of papers. Swinger acknowledges from the beginning that um, he had received from his stepfather, Conrad Lycosthenes, his collection of notes. And what you see here, I think, actually I don't think I brought the slide for that. No, I didn't, sorry. But anyways, I can show through handwriting that these, this is in the hand of his stepfather, Conrad Lycosthenes, because I have an ex libris in his hand. And what you see here is a heading, a number, and then for, under the heading, you have a number of entries, which are actually formatted exactly like the printed theatrum, as in the proper name in caps, and then a story, uh, often with a punchline, sort of an apophthegm, and then a source, Alexander of Alexandro, book one, chapter three, and all of these on this slip are from the same Alexander of Alexandro. And then here we have a cross-reference on the skills of animals, see tome two, folio 383, this number is added by, uh, later by librarians. So we're on slip 450, and we have a cross-reference to tome 2, volume 383. And here we have slip 383 on the skills of brood animals. Again, the format. Uh, so we can see here, I think, slips that were used in composing the book. The question is, what is the relationship between these slips and the book? So actually, most of these stories I haven't found in the book, although it's hard, as I mentioned, to be sure about saying there's something not in the book, because of course um, you're relying on these indexes that aren't intuitively obvious to us. That's why you can see why I like the proper name as the mode of access. But we certainly know from the case of Samuel Johnson's dictionary in the 18th century, where we have a choir that was prepared for the fourth revised edition, but that has survived because it was forgotten that it was made by gluing slips in. And uh, my hypothesis is that these slips were omitted for some reason by error or intention, and that's why they survive. Because if they hadn't been omitted, they would have been glued onto a sheet in the order in which they were to be printed from and taken over to the print shop right away. No one's going to copy over a slip again. So the point is, you take your notes on slips of paper so that you can arrange them. When you have it in the right arrangement, you glue them and that will be your printer's copy. And you've spared yourself the need to copy again. I have more, more uh, solid evidence of this uh, coming up. So that was the pretty straightforward case of Conrad Lycosthenes taking notes and then passing them on to his, his uh, stepson. Actually, I have a few um, slips by Zwinger himself, which is in much worse handwriting. He has smaller slips. Um, and, of course, they only a few of them survive. Again, we don't exactly know, know why those survive and not others. But now I'm going to take you to, uh, it's actually back in time, but it's a more complicated use of slips, to Zurich, Conrad Gessner, who just was uh, a little bit older than Zwinger, and the author of many works of compilation. So the Biblioteca Universalis is his uh, universal bibliography of 1545, and he also wrote many books of natural history, so on snakes and uh, fish and mammals, quadrupeds. 
and uh, this rabbit will, will be important in the next slide. So one of the nice things about the Nachlas of Gessner in Zurich is that it includes some manuscripts used in casting off, as in these are the manuscripts that were used to print from, and then they're basically junked, but these did survive. So what we can really be assured of that this is the manuscript used for printing, as you can see, De Cuniculo on the rabbit, and it says figura, picture, and we have page 394 and signature 10K, K10. And here we are, what do we have on page 394? De Cuniculo, and we have our figura. So, uh, and actually the signature works too. So that is the compositors marking up, casting off, deciding how many words per page, how big the picture is going to be, and blank marking off uh, what you will be composing for each. So this is to, to show what happens to a manuscript once it's printed from, and it normally has become garbage. It's marked up in this way. In the Gessner manuscripts, we have a work called The Thesaurus of Practical Medicine, which, as it says here, collected by Kaspar Wolf after Conrad Gessner's death from autograph slips of Conrad Gessner and letters of very you know, famous doctors of his age and concilia, that sort of advice, written and from his own experience and observation. So in other words, Kaspar Wolf was actually someone to whom Gessner had bequeathed his notes in order for them to be published. But Kaspar Wolf never really got his act together. The most sad case is um, Gessner's Plants Historia Plantarum, which remained in manuscript saved, circulated, sold, changed hands, I don't know, five times until it was finally printed in the early 18th century, more than, you know, 140 years after Gessner died. How sad that it wasn't produced much closer to his time because it, it was even important when it was published and it would have been much more important had it been published much earlier. But one of the things Wolf uh, did manage to do, apparently, was to form these three folio volumes from Gessner's notes. We don't know how Gessner saved these slips of paper. He could have had them in pigeonholes or envelopes or bags. We have examples of contemporaries saving their notes on slips in all of those forms. Um, but then he glued them under topical headings. It's kind of faint, but basically you get a disease in a red handwriting up here, which is what's being discussed here. And then you get a collection of recipes that Gessner had saved for that disease that Wolf is then gluing under the correct heading and the idea would be to take it to the print shop to print from. But of course, it doesn't get printed from, so it doesn't get de destroyed, and it's there for us to see how a big book might be made. So what do we see? We see slips glued, manuscript slips, and then we see some slips that are printed. How do you get a printed slip? So this one's in Gothic, it's in German. This one is in Roman type, it's in Latin. And I hope you agree with me. It's a little faint, I agree, but I see a red line through this piece of print. And if you remember, um, well, the marking up often, this one doesn't actually show it, but the marking up often involved striking a red line through text once it was um, processed and, and printed from. So in other words, what I see here are signs of casting off, at least on this bit. <coughs> so what would that mean? That would mean that this piece of Latin printed prose had been used to print from, as in making a second edition of that work marked up by the compositor, and then what? Trashed, put on the floor, cutting room floor. Gessner, of course, is very close to his printer, Operinus, 
hangs out at the print shop. Oh, that's a cool book you just printed. Picks it up off the floor, takes it home, cuts it up, and stores it, the bits he likes, under his nose. That would be one way of getting value out of a worthless, you know, piece of of, uh, printed matter that has served its purpose by being printed from. This having been said, Gessner also explicitly recommends owning two copies of a book so you can cut bits you like from both the recto and the verso of any given page. (laughs) However, it strikes me that a third copy would also be useful in case you wanted to read the book again. (laughs) That's not, he doesn't go into that level of detail. But in other words, we don't only have to think of him destroying new books. It's much more likely that he's cutting and pasting from old books, books that he can come across that have lost their commercial value and that are being rejuvenated by being reprinted and actually can come into his hands completely free. So here are more examples from this same collection, and you can see here a very nice case of a manuscript being used in casting off, again with, what, 41, and this is some kind of uh, signature, I think, and the the red pencil marking. Uh, And here he's decided to save that piece of manuscript and introduce it into his collection of notes. And finally, this is a nice example of, of that blue, thicker paper in which unbound books those cheap things were sold at the print shop, uh, hence the name Bibliothèque Bleu for French chapbooks, and uh, that was probably that he probably used to copy from something he couldn't actually take away with him uh, at the print shop, and it was ready to hand, and so he uses it to take a note, and then of course he stuffs that into his note collection. So we can see here a lot of attention to saving the labor of copying by um, reusing material that's already either printed or in manuscript. Gessner also talks about, and he does, cut and paste from letters he's received from people. So we have one letter where he's responding to a correspondent who's saying, I'm so sorry, I lost your your earlier letter to me. Could you please write it again? And in response, it, of course, that was in response to my previous letter. And Gessner said, I'm terribly sorry, I can't. I have cut up your letter <laughs> and, you know, filed it. So he can't respond to it again, right? And indeed, in this collection, I don't have a picture of it because I I didn't know how to ask them as a German on top of it all to take a picture of the fact that Wolf has made little windows in the paper so that if the the thing of interest is a letter written on both sides of a piece of paper, he glues the uh, letter in the window and you can actually read the text on both sides. So nothing is lost necessarily in this world. It's a, it's a world of saving and accumulating, and I think that's ultimately where the overload comes from. It's this new approach to knowledge, that it's something you should stockpile. Talking about causes of this of new attitude towards stockpiling, I would point mainly to something Gessner articulates very clearly, <laughs> the trauma of loss, the heavy awareness that humanists have that there was all this great stuff in antiquity only a fraction of which has come down to us. And just never again, right? Now, Peresque will save every thought thunk by anybody so that it will never be lost. Now, we, and, and Gessner talks about printing and patronizing libraries to, uh, as, a, as a guarantee against any future loss. So there's this obsession with preventing loss, guarding against loss. That may be one of the motives. Um, And, of course, we could talk about this collecting impulse in many other areas. I've only focused on texts and textual snippets. 
but people are also collecting paintings and medals and all kinds of antiquarian objects, and they're collecting New World specimens and botanical specimens and so on. And similarly, this is the period of the birth of the museum and other collections where people also try to control their collection beyond their death by creating entails, by creating, forming a museum and donating your stuff. Isn't that sort of the hope that it will stay as a collection and be transmitted? Of course, many, many a collection was dispersed or lost or treated not, not as well as the original collector would have hoped. Gessner might have been disappointed with Wolf, but we can get some good out of the fact that this stuff was never printed. I'd like, we've now come, uh, I'm uh, going to close here on one of the ways in which the slip finally makes it as something of use qua slip. So for Gessner, the slip is a, a temporary phase. You take it on a, your notes on a slip or you, or you cut things up into slips and you sort them and then ultimately though you glue them on a page and you print up that page and they're no longer a slip. But this is a vision which actually is first articulated in the 1640s in a manuscript coming out of the Hartlib Circle which is currently in the British Library but which is then printed um, in so about 50 years later in this North German uh, university environment as your note closet. And he, what you have here are, is, of course, a large, you know, like an armoire, you know, and you open it up with two doors, and you have these um, sticks with uh, white lead, and so you can write your headings on the stick, and behind each heading you have a, a hook, and on the hook you can poke your slips. The main fear with slips is that you're going to lose them. They're going to blow away a door, an open door, uh, you know, dogs are going to make off with your slips. They're going to become disordered. <laughs> the ultimate, the, the actually the dog excuse is in um, Drexel. You know, dogs can damage you. This is the, the dog ate my homework is present in the 17th century. Or adumbrated, shall we say. Um, but of course with this note closet, you are sticking your slips in some quasi-permanent way. And yet, they are rearrangeable. So the point is, you can have up to 3,000 headings all visible at once in front of you. Um, your notes are, can be rearranged. Your notes can be shared with other people. You can lend out notes on a topic. You can never part with that notebook, right? That, that, so you can't part with your notes on a single topic if you are living in the notebook world. But if you're living in this note closet world, then yes, you can share a certain part. And you can also have multiple people contributing to the same note closet. And, and Plakius describes recommendations of students working in, in groups of three to six collaboratively. You might assign a theme to each person or a particular book to different people and they would contribute their notes to the note closet. And he's very conscious also of living in the era of the early scientific societies. Uh, it's also the period of the birth of journals which involve a fair amount of collaborative work. And he talks about the note closet as a form of uh, a, a tool for the libri sociales, social books, collaboratively written books. Um, of course, the note closet is a major, major investment of office furniture. Um, <laughs> none survived, to my knowledge. The Cabinet Magazine in New York City, in Brooklyn, is actually hoping to build a note closet. It'll be fun to see if that happens. You know that some book wheels were made after Tony Grafton uh, called attention to them. Although there we had some old ones that there were, I think, some authentically, you know, 18th century book wheels at the Herzog Augustbibliothek in Wolfenbüttel. But note closets, to my knowledge, we only know for sure that two were made, 
in that Plakius talks about making his, and Leibniz was given a note closet made according to Plakius' specifications when he was librarian um, at actually the Herzog August Bibliothek. Leibniz being someone who was very uh, explicit about being a messy note taker, never being able to find anything in his notes and always doing the work over again. Uh, so I don't know if he actually used the note closet <laughs> to good effect or not. On that note, I will end with the uh, frontispiece to my book, which um, was a real a, a fortuitous find in an exhibit catalog on Darwin, of all um, topics, which I was working up for a class of mine in science and religion. Anyway, it's called The Learned Man. And what I don't emphasize enough, but I will change my caption for the paperback, which is coming out in the fall, I think this is a satire. It shows us, I think, with a lot of detail, the kinds of things one can reasonably expect in a scholar's study. But this depiction of the scholar sort of gazing out at you <laughs> in a sort of slightly bovine look, um, <laughs> you know, completely, he, he's not, and of course, in a complete mess of books and manuscripts everywhere, and you see some alchemical objects and a, a stove here, and then also there's the helper in the back. Uh, no scholar depicts himself with a helper. Thank you. Scholars work alone from inspiration and with their books. The helpers might depict themselves with the scholar, as we saw with Cognatus, but this is not a favorable rendition of scholarship, even though I like to think of it as a license to all of us to have messy offices. <laughs> so just a reminder then that it's, this is the vanity of learning. Now, what did I have? Words of wisdom. So the takeaways from today are, if I can find my... My final sheet. Oh, the takeaway. Here we are. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Early printed reference works honed and spread medieval methods of information management, like alphabetization, the use of subject headings, though they never had a controlled vocabulary. Um, so, they, so that the early modern period doesn't invent that much, but it diffuses a lot. It makes readers familiar with reference reading and how to use indexes. Lots of the early indexes come with a little blurb explaining how to use it. And afterwards, by the late 17th century, indexes don't need explanatory notes anymore. Bulk note takers and compilers develop new devices, like the use of the mobile slip, cutting and pasting from manuscripted print. Some tools soon became obsolete, like the note closet. But the slip, cutting and pasting, had a long career ahead. Uh, in the world of paper, that we have the Encyclopedia Britannica. Smelly talks about it in the 18th century. I've had a number of people telling me that when they were you know, starting out in the 60s, um, what you did was you went to the stationer and you bought glue and you cut up your notes and you glued them onto sheets for your lectures. That's how you did lecture prep. Um, that's before, you know, the wonders of, of uh, cutting and pasting virtually or uh, electronically. So the, many of these methods are still with us in various forms and I think one of the opportunities of our own transition in working methods is to reflect on what it is from these methods that we want to keep with us uh, as we move into new media. So thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Of course. That's the best part. Yes? Terrific talk and really exciting, but as, as you were going through it, and this sort of, your last image, your cover image, really prompts this question for me. Do you, and maybe this is a modern question, 
Do you get a sense that there's a great deal of anxiety behind this? It seems like this is a very compulsive, nerve-making, anxious, <laughs> we're gonna lose the past. Mm -hmm. Do you get a, do they talk about this? Well, so they're not terribly self-reflexive. They don't, they don't go into soul-searching very often. However, Plakios, the note closet man, is quite autobiographical. At the end of his manual on note-taking, he talks about how, you know, he has always loved to make alphabetical lists, and that even at age eight, he would alphabetize the words of books. Uh, at age 14, he started uh, indexing books and making lists and genealogies, and basically he lists something like 72 works in manuscript that he has compiled lists of women writers, lists of gods and goddesses and their you know family structure and lists of books. And one of those lists ends up in print. It's a collection of pseudonymous and anonymous writings where he's identifying um, works that were published pseudonymously or anonymously, which actually has some interesting political implications, uh, sort of unmasking. So there's a personality type, I would say, uh, <laughs> evident, richly evident in that case. And in, in some sense, there are always people who are very anxious in the Sakini type, the, you know, read only a few books, but read them to the end and take your notes over and over again and memorize them. That's one kind of reaction, which is maybe anxious, saying, we don't need all this stuff. We really only need a little good stuff, you know, the very best. Versus the, the type of person I've spent most time with is sort of the effusive, oh yes, more is better, you know, uh, the plenty line, no book so bad that some good, good cannot be gotten of it. You can always do something from every scrap of, of thought. So that strikes me as less anxious than exuberant, maybe. Uh, but of course it might be uh, what we would call, you know, compulsive in various ways. <laughs> but I, I, I haven't gone into the, a, a deep psycho <laughs> explanation of, of Plakius, but there's potential there. Thanks. Anxiety is a hard term. You know, everybody says their period, people were more anxious than it's a period of crisis and so on. Um, so I'm a little wary of, of arguing that, um, but but I'll grant you that, yeah. They were they were uh, they were articulating uh, concerns. Yeah. By the um, 18th century, certainly people like Swift and Pope denigrate index right. learning. Yeah. People don't really know anything. They just read the. Right. The flora gelium, and they understand. You know, they think they understand, but they don't really because they didn't get the argument. You know, yep. people could say the same thing about sick had known in some ways or Lombard mm -hmm. sentences. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is 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 that reflected in the period at all? And and also, were these books used in dictation as a form of teaching? Were these books used in classroom instruction, mm -hmm. where where since they were expensive and multi-volume, the teacher himself would make an excerpt of the excerpts mm -hmm. and then mediate those mm -hmm. to the students? Mm -hmm. That's a very nice question, thank you. I don't think any teacher would explicitly use this as a source, but we have a great passage in Gabriel Naudet who's recommending that you buy these things, and he talks about their utility, and he gives the example of someone who will remain nameless, who um, was preparing, you know, a class basically, and was very proudly glossing a, an obscure passage, 
by rifling through some 50 dictionaries that he had around him and boasting that everyone would think that he had spent two or three days coming up with that explanation, whereas in fact he'd gotten it very quickly. But there's some opprobrium attached to it, hence the anonymousness of it. So I can easily see teachers using these, but it's not something they would explicitly, and now we will take dictation from, <laughs> you know, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I haven't yet, that's a very nice point, and it might be documentable, because one of the kinds of sources I have also worked on is student annotations in textbooks from the late 16th century where the books were printed with wide margins and the students really took under dictation glosses on, say, Ovid or Virgil, very much like what you get, you know, explaining all the gods and goddesses and the figures of speech and all the kinds of things that might be taught today still. And, and I did occasionally find some of those definitions in dictionaries. I didn't actually, I didn't actually look in the Florilegia. I wasn't working on that kind of source then. It might not quite work as well. Um, because the Florilegium is, is always an authority, someone said. So it's better to trot that out when you're giving a sermon or a letter or something rather than just glossing. So, But you can certainly see the impact of printed reference books in teaching, but it's not something that one boasts about, I think. And so that does get to your other point, which is that these are sort of, I think, the dirty little secret type things, and many scholars say they never use dictionaries. So Scaliger, for example, says that. And of course, you look at his, the auction catalog of his library, and there are tons of reference books in there. You know, um, you know I, don't make dic- I don't read dictionaries, I make them. That's sort of his, you know, the image he likes to project. Uh, and of course, we can't really know how much he used them. But um, they were, obviously, what we have is the printing histories, which show you know, that someone's buying them um, enough to you know, encourage printers to and compilers to go to this considerable effort uh, to make them um, because they're going to sell them. So, but there is fairly soon an undercurrent of, and in fact I use that sort of as an argument for the significance of, of reference books, is the critique of them. Right? The idea that these are just shortcuts and that people are losing true learning, that uh, they were made with good intentions perhaps originally, but then you get all these people who don't know anything, who are relying on them exclusively, and the pedagogues always from the beginning are saying, don't use the reference books, don't use the reference books. They're protesting too much, aren't they? Um, so uh, there is this, this love-hate relationship with them. They are, they are not, um, on the other hand, you know, some major scholars made some major reference books, although not Florilegia, but dictionaries, high-class high dictionaries like Henri Estienne's Thesaurus Linguae Graecae, which of course ruined him. That was not a, a commercial success, um, but it is one that's had a huge, a hugely long shelf life. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if the um, availability or cost of paper had any bearing on this. Uh, was it something that limited people? Was it not an issue because they were of such a high class? Or was it a driving force behind the activity? Mm-hmm. No, thanks for a lot for that. Is absolutely right. I think that the collection of bulk notes for treating notes as something you keep and stockpile is only possible with paper, um, because it, it, paper is durable without even trying, right? And it's much cheaper than parchment. However, there is a lot of wasted paper in quality note taking. So someone like Peresk talks about how he always took a blank sheet every time he takes a note. So that's a waste. 
most of the time, of course, there's going to be a lot. But, of course, the, the blank sheet is operating like a slip for him. That way he can add things to it, he can rearrange it, and he doesn't have to recopy. Right? So there's this trade-off between wasting paper and not having to copy again. Uh, so I tend to feel that, that the, the sort of, you know, the high-end note-takers will go to great expense for the sake of their notes. And we know that someone like Robert Boyle, you know, bought colored ribbons and they used colored inks and, you know, to try and sort and, and indicate things with color. Uh, you know, so it's sort of like all those storage solutions, you know, <laughs> that, are, that are out there on the web that you buy up and then, of course, your closet's just as messy as it always was. But in other words, lots of people are clearly putting money into their notes. Um, but, of course, it's much less money than it would have been involved in the world of parchment when no one did really stockpile their notes. So paper makes it possible, I would say. I'd like to know a lot more about paper, actually. If any of you are <coughs> paper experts, what I'd like to know is what's available for sale in, <coughs> you know, in the stationers. What kinds of notebooks could you buy, um, and how does that shape uh, in different environments? I'm, I'm sure it changes over time and by place and by you know, province versus big urban center and so on to be continued then. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting way that I was, um, I think a possibly interesting way to think about the life of the quotation mm-hmm. or the way in which uh, so-called established experts can be mobilized and deployed in the service of one's own argument. I just wondered if you saw any, um, what might be attendant or concomitant shifts in, because mm-hmm. I'm thinking how, really terrific it would be, but you don't have to rely on what may be in a perfect memory, but go to your note cabinet or your notebook, mm-hmm. and there you have what you believe is a fairly reliable transcript of whatever now you want to bring into your own place. Right. Now, that's a very nice question. Um, did anybody, so whether the new note-taking methods and the stockpiling have an impact on how people write. Okay. Yeah. So one of the problems with that is that, yes, I would say yes, <clears throat> but if there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Of course, um, copious prose is one of the you know, great hallmarks of humanist Latin. And Erasmus has a big book, big, big book on de copia, you know, how do you write copious prose? And of course, he talks about commonplacing, take notes. Um, and of course, you do it by also co- copiousness comes in different forms, you know, rhetorical variation, enumeration, there are all kinds of similes and comparisons and you want to everything wants to be developed one of the places it's very visible is in sermon uh, baroque sermons are noted for stuffing in examples and quotations and authorities uh, and it, it's considered sort of a, a, a style of, of sermonizing um, which is characteristic of the period Montaigne's essays would be a perfect example then of someone who is stuffing uh, he has these headings, basically, and his essays are lining up example after example uh, in artful ways, unpredictable ways, surprising ways, uh, you know, combining the ancient authority and right next to something of his personal experience or uh, a much more recent uh, occurrence. And, and yet, interestingly, he's not someone who took bulk notes, right, as far as we know. We have a few from his early uh, days. He did annotate a few books. But um, basically, and, but we don't have 
this kind of stockpiling multiple volumes of notes the way we have from so many other, you know, lesser figures. So he, I think, we have to think of as an, as an abundant author who's not actually an abundant note-taker. So it doesn't really correlate perfectly. But of course, um, many people will benefit from having a note closet in order to be an abundant author. Then, then we have someone like Plakius, who has the note closet, and he doesn't publish anything <laughs> except for his list of anonymous and pseudonymous things. And then he has these other manuscripts that we hear about. Or, there, or there's Peresque. So there really is a, a, it's a complex interaction. But I would say maybe then the answer might be that there's a common cause in this sort of mentality of heaping, which of course isn't completely new. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the clusters of, of authorities that scholastics line up, uh, you know, are there in the 13th century. And the legal world is a particular, you know, has tons of these accumulating um, authorities. That, that's how you argue, basically. And you, you line them all up and Gratian's Digest. I mean, they're full... <laughs> Uh, they are, are full of, of, of loads of, of quotations that sort of travel and then you lift them and you add to them and, and they, they travel down. So it's not utterly new. Uh, although I think in terms of the copia qua, as a form of Latin writing, that probably is new uh, with humanism. So yes, but. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> may know Terence Cave's The Cornucopic Text, which might be the source on that. But Absolutely. Um, it's a wonderful book. Oh, yeah. But this was a wonderful talk, and we're going to continue <laughs> our conversation in Alderman Library uh, 109 over a glass of wine. We'd like to thank Professor Blair. We have a, a little note for you, and but also oh a copy of the poster oh we used to publicize your <laughs> Thank talk. You. Thank you very much for, for spending the time. From Richmond to Boston, they're, they're, I'm not going to let them put this even check in there. <laughs> I will clutch this. We, we will bubble wrap it for you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. We'll still take a carry on. <laughs> right, right. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. Kind. Thank you. And thanks to all of you.